When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Ugly Things Podcast. My name is Mike Stacks. Today, we're going to be looking into the story of a band called Thus. Four high school kids from upstate New York who in 1968 had the pluck and ambition to make an album of their best songs. They called it All of Thus. They had a limited budget, so they kept their ambitions realistic. They set up a table outside the front door of the school and took pre-orders from their fellow students. According to bass player Don Corbett, they pre-sold 260 albums. So they went ahead and ordered 265 copies from Century Records, a custom pressing company. All of Us was something special, regarded by many as one of the finest teen garage albums of the era. But with only 265 copies in circulation, it would be decades before anyone outside of the tiny town of Victor, New York ever heard or ever knew of its existence. The members of Thus were John, or Jay, Johnston on lead vocals and guitar, Don Corbett on bass and backing vocals, Jerry Huckensfeld on keyboard and vocals, and Barry Dalgleish on drums. We featured their story in issue number 59 of Ugly Things, and today, drummer Barry Dalgleish is going to share his story with us. All right, I'm talking to Barry Dalgleish of Thus. So, uh, Barry, nice to have you with us. Nice to be here. L- let's talk about um, the band was from Victor, New York. You know, tell me where is Victor, New York, and what was it like back then in the 60s? Um, Victor, New York, very small town south of Rochester, New York. I remember being very, very small, much smaller than it is now. Not that I visited recently, but I do know people there still. Uh, but it was very small, very uh, tight-knit little community, own school system there. Right, I see a population back then about 10,000, I believe. So, yeah, that's yeah, a real small town. But yeah, it was small. I mean, I don't know if it was that much when I moved there. <laughs> <laughs> So tell me, uh, yeah, what you weren't originally from there. So uh, what did your parents do for a living, and uh, where did you originally come from? Uh, originally, I was born in Ontario, Canada, right over the border in Niagara Falls, and spent uh, you know those first years growing up in Fort Erie. A lot of family around Niagara on the lake and all of that. Well, my folks uh, emigrated to the States in 1960. Uh, and it was more of a work issue for my father. So we moved to uh, Hamburg, New York, which is south, I believe, south of uh, Buffalo. Yeah. And we were there probably about three years. And again, work opportunities came up for him to move to the Rochester area. And that was about, you know, uh, 63, 64. Right. 
And at that point, were you already uh, playing music? What what inspired you to start playing? Oh boy, that was uh, that was really the result of meeting uh, Don and Jay when I was a kid. Uh, I I remember Don being probably one of the first people that I met when I moved to Victor. That's Don Corbett, yeah. Yeah, Don Corbett. Um, I think he was just trying to hustle another paper route customer, I believe, is how it all started. But uh, we got friendly, and he invited me to a uh, Saturday recreation program where he introduced me to his best friend, uh, Jay Johnston. Right. And tell me about Jay. What was he like? Um, you know, I, I was drawn to him. Uh, you know, he was a friend of Don's. I was new. I could use all the friends I could get. So... Uh, at this point, you were in, uh, you still in junior high school at this point? I was in the middle of sixth grade when I moved to Victor. Right. Right in the middle of the year. And they were the same age as you. Yeah, a year older than I was, yeah. Right. So, uh, you know, it just ended up that the three of us were just, you know, would hang around all the time doing all kinds of crazy stuff and just being kids, really. What, what kind of crazy stuff would you guys get up to? I, uh, I heard Don mention oh. there was a little trouble sometimes. Oh, yeah. That was uh, unfortunate, but uh, that occurred on occasion. <laughs> uh, fortunately, we grew out of that, got into something a little more constructive. But uh, we all had uh, paper routes in town. That was one of our big things. We were all up, you know, 4 o'clock in the morning out delivering papers. We'd meet down at the diner at around 6 and, you know, shoot the breeze. And it was good times. Right. And that's when, uh, around the time that the Beatles and the Stones and the whole British invasion thing happened, right? Correct. Yep. We uh, we all kind of dropped into that. Uh, you know, it was a lot of fun. A lot of great music then. There was one band in Rochester, New York, that I was really fond of, and they were called the Quirks. And uh, I don't believe they ever recorded anything, but uh, you know, they were an excellent copy band. I mean, just excellent. Oh, okay, yeah. I don't, I don't know of any records by them. Yeah. Yeah. Did you see any bigger bands? Did you see the Stones or the Beatles or Bob Dylan or? We 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 went to a few concerts together. Um, Stones or Beatles, no, only because Rochester's a smaller market. But, you know, I remember going to concerts and, you know, we'd see people like uh, Johnny Winter and we were very inspired. And, uh, you know, what was fortunate is that we decided at one point to start a band. We could do this. And I think that was more at uh, Jay or John Johnston's prompting. You know, very talented guy. And so we just started this band. Right. He, uh, Jay, he came from a musical family, right? I mean, maybe you could talk a little bit about about his mom and stuff. Yes. His mother, you know, I got to know her, I think, more after, uh, you know, I'd been over to the house several times, stuff just as kids. But uh, when the band started up, I mean, terribly supportive. But yeah, she uh, was, a, a, I believe, the musical director at one of the local churches and very talented woman. And that's, I'm sure, is where Jay got it from. Right. So he was kind of driving the thing in the beginning, and uh, oh, I think so. Yeah, he was he was the unofficial leader for sure. Yeah. And so, how was how did you end up playing drums? Was that something you were drawn to, or just ended up with uh, more by default? I think of of the three of us, I was the least musically inclined. 
So, uh, you know, I figured maybe playing drums or learning how to play drums, I could back up my friends because I enjoyed my friends. Right. And in the beginning, Don was not even playing bass, right? It was just uh, Jay on guitar and you on drums. Right. Then, you know, Don picked up six string at that point and uh, really he graduated to bass once uh, Jerry joined the band because Jerry originally was a bass player. Right. Before Jerry came along, though, um, you know, how did you, you picked out a name for the band and started playing? And tell us about that. Mm -hmm. Oh, we were just doing, you know, sock hop kind of things in the community and at the school. More so in the community area, that's a couple of the churches would have, you know, these dances and whatnot and the weekends and things. And uh, we were more than willing. So uh, that's really how we started. And that was, you were still the Impalas at that point, after the Chevy Impala. Yes, that's correct. What, what kind of songs were you doing? Well, you know, what was the typical repertoire of the three-piece Impalas? Oh, yeah. If I, I really can't remember, it was a lot of that early British invasion stuff, uh, probably a couple of Beatles songs, Jerry and the Pacemakers, and yeah, the Kinks for sure, but uh, there was so much then. Uh, right. So how long did you do that before uh, Jerry came along? We were into high school by then, so it may have been a couple of years. Again, it was a little sporadic. We were all learning and, you know practicing a lot we really had gotten into it jerry was sort of a godsend for us in a lot of ways he uh, was a transfer to our high school like i said he had originally been playing a bass and he was you know well versed with keyboards very very talented guy and uh he took over the keyboard duties don picked up the bass i believe he actually bought his bass from jerry and uh, we were off from there. And that, uh, you told me, that really transformed the sound as far as, you know, bringing it up to a different level, right? Oh, absolutely. You know, my feelings were, at least from my observations, was that's really what freed Jay to start writing. Right. You know, he was less focused on the orchestration of the band and had the time now to, you know, pursue his writing. Which, you know, was really pretty good. Definitely rounded out the band and freed Jay up quite a bit. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, back then, most bands, they just played, you know, the hits. They were, they played the songs people wanted to hear. So it was kind of mm -hmm. actually pretty unusual for a high school band to, you know, start playing original music, which is what you guys did. Correct. The songwriting is real impressive. I mean, what was inspiring him? I mean, you know, tell us a little bit about his songs. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I think a lot of it's just like growing up and socializing, uh, falling in love, that sort of thing. So I think that was a big inspiration. Right. Yeah. I mean, he was writing about the, the world, his world, what he was experiencing. That's part of, I think, why those songs are good, because they are relatable and they're real. Correct. Um, Tell us about the, what was your setup for practice sessions? You know, how often did you practice and where did you practice? Uh, it seemed like we practiced all the time. I mean, it had to have been like 
three afternoons a week at the least. And we uh, practiced at Jay's house in his mother's music room. And uh, they were very tolerant of us. I mean, they're very, very supportive. You know, we were making all that racket in their house, and we did it day after day after day, and I never remember a complaint. <laughs> At one point, though, it moved out of that uh, music room, right, and into um, some place in back of the house. Uh I think briefly, mostly we practiced in the house. We, for a while, I think actually earlier on, we had practiced out in, uh, there was this kind of garage barn out behind Jay's house. And we, we used to set up out there, I remember, on occasion, but eventually moved into the house, which is where I remember doing most of our practicing. Okay. I think Don remembered it the other way around, that you, you gradually got louder and louder so that you ended up migrating to the barn, but it's been over 50 years, so <laughs> who knows? You know? Yes. I just don't remember Jerry and the keyboards up in the barn, that's all. So it may just be me. <laughs> <laughs> and what kind of keyboards did Jerry have? Uh, I, I think we had like a, a, a small electric uh, piano, like I don't know if it was a Wurlitzer or what it was, maybe a Farfisa organ. Yeah. We had them both, yeah. yeah after we got into it, we started buying equipment. You know, every chance we got, I mean, that's where any money we made, we put it into equipment. Yeah. Did you open a bank account for the band or how did the, how did that work? Uh, yes. Yes. Don and I opened up a uh, banking account at the local branch in Victor, New York, a savings account. <laughs> <laughs> and this was just money that you would make from playing shows and stuff. Doing gigs and stuff. And then we'd collect money and we'd buy amps, we'd buy speaker systems, you know, tried to upgrade all the time. Did you still have your paper routes going through the band years as well? Uh, I, I think we retired from that somewhere mid through high school, I think. When we graduated to cars, I think the paper routes went away. Right. You probably could make more money playing music than uh, slinging newspapers yeah, from yeah, bicycles, yeah. right? I would hope so. <laughs> These days, I don't know. You might be better with a paper route. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> So at what point the band name changed from the Impalas to Thus? I guess that was right around the time Jerry joined? Yes, I would say so, yeah. And what was the thinking behind the name? Uh, can you re remember how that came about? Uh, we were just kicking around names. You know, we weren't the Impalas <laughs> anymore, obviously. So uh, I think it was just not one of these things we were kicking around. Uh, Don recalls it as, you know, talking about the who and the thus and all that. And uh, that's kind of where it came. You know, it was going to be the us. And then it came up, well, how about we just call it thus? Simplify it. And everybody went for it. And uh, there we are. Yeah, it's a good, it's a good simple name. But for, I guess for many years uh, before the band was found, collectors assumed that the band was actually called all of this, because that was all of this. Right. That was the name of the album, and it didn't really differentiate. Just sort of a, a mis a misnomer. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it was just thus. So, how did the album come about? Uh, I believe it was Jay's prompting. You know, doing all this writing and stuff. I think he wanted to really wanted to get it out there. But uh, I remember him telling me that he had spoken with the gentleman who recorded. Oh, the schools, high school musicals and stuff like that. And he broached the topic to this gentleman. Uh, you know, would you be interested in recording our band? And uh, he said yes. And I remember Jay telling me that he would be interested in doing this. And then, you know, kind of got a ballpark figure on what it might cost us. 
And we set about pre-selling these records that we were going to produce. Right. You know, they hadn't been recorded yet. It was all done on faith. So, you know, we kind of knew how much money we needed to pay for this. And that's how we sold the albums. We just set up a table in the high school and sold all the records we possibly could. So um, how many pre-sales did you have? Uh, I know Don has mentioned he thought it was like 365 copies. And it wasn't more than 300. You know, I'm thinking... I always had 300 in my mind because for some reason this niggling figure of the album was going to cost us 900 bucks to do. (laughs) So if we sold, you know, 300 copies at three bucks a piece, we're covered. Yeah. Yeah. I think he remembered 260 pre-sales. So uh, you went ahead and ordered 265 albums so that you would have a few extras. That is very possible. So we should talk about, just as a sort of sidebar uh, thought here, um, what this was was a custom pressing. And um, this is something that we don't really have in the 21st century. But back then, a custom pressing company was uh, sort of a record label where you could just go and order – you know, a, a limited amount of copies of, of your own record, and uh, they mm-hmm. would press them up, and in many cases, they would just provide, like, generic cover art. They would just add an overlay of text over, you know, a picture of a sunset right. or, or, or an ocean or something like that. And now, and That's right. Century Records was the biggest one in the country, based in California. They had a mm-hmm. pretty big pressing uh, operation, and they had agents all over the country, and they would go around churches and high schools, and they would hustle up business. They would have recording equipment. They would come and record the school choir. They would record the high school musical, and uh, you know they would press these up, sell them to the parents. So um, thus was kind of a, a, a rare example of a rock band that used the custom pressing service to uh, make their album. So this guy, Bill Dangler, had his little studio in Rochester and it's a portable recording equipment. And he was the guy that had recorded the, you know, high school, your high school uh, musical or whatever. And he was the guy that went ahead and uh, recorded your album, right? That's correct. Yes. Yeah. It's a great experience. Yeah. I mean, he was, he must have, you know, known how to record, get a decent quality recording under any conditions. So let's talk about the recording process for this album, mm-hmm. because it's a little different. You didn't go into a recording studio. Right. Um, tell us about the process, how that went down. Uh, we actually recorded all the music tracks on the high school stage. So in the auditorium of the high school. Correct. Mr. Dangler, and he set up his equipment on there. We set up the band on there, and over the course, I believe, just two sessions, we uh, recorded all the music end of it and then did the vocals in his studio in Rochester. Right. Tell, tell us about his studio. It was a pretty small setup, right? A very small setup, but, uh, you know, we were impressed. What, what do we know? You know, <laughs> we, we thought it was great. Um, he'd be in his behind his glass wall working his soundboard and whatnot, and there's an overhead mic, and the three other guys did all their vocals right there. It was, it was exciting. It really was. What kind of tape machine did he use? No, I couldn't tell you. Yeah, I really couldn't tell you. I mean, it, it's curious, too. I mean, the original album being, you know, a mono recording, too, which was kind of unusual, I guess. You know, yes and no at that time period. They were just sort of making that transition. 
Uh, yeah, it might well have been a two-track machine where he just used one track for those backing tracks at the auditorium, and then he went in and used the other track for the vocals and blended them together. It, it's very possible. Yeah, I mean, there's, there are spots on the album there where, you know, there was stuff that wasn't quite mixed in or, you know, overshadowed by the other instruments, so... Right, because the balance was just what you had in the auditorium right. on the day, but... I. I think it works really nicely because you get a really nice big room sound and you just get a natural blend of how you guys might have sounded live. But mm -hmm. Well, I mean, it was terribly live. It was, it was really, it couldn't have been any more <laughs> live than it was. <laughs> it did turn out well. It really did. I, it's, uh, it adds to its longevity, I think. Yeah, it's got so much atmosphere to it, and it's just and and I mean above all, I think it's it's the songwriting and and uh, oh yeah, and the blend of the voices. It's really nice. And Jay is a strong singer as well. He's got a really nice voice. Oh, he really excellent voice, excellent, pretty impressive. So, what are some of your favorites on the album of Jay's songs? Uh, I, I think a lot a lot of them with. Uh, you know, the backup vocals, uh, like last night. That's one of my favorites, but we're a lie. It's very, you know, a very strong number. I mean, I remember us used to opening a lot of the shows with that that we did. Yeah, that is a real, a real standout. And Artificial Lies, I think, is another one that's uh, I, I really like a lot. Mm -hmm. Was that another one that used to play in your live set as well? I guess all of them were, right? Oh, we did them all. We did them all. I remember after we recorded the album and we got them and distribute them to everybody who bought them. I remember I was doing a, a gig at a community center in Victor. And uh, first set, we did side one. Second set, we did side two. It was great. You know? <laughs> it was really great. I wish you would have pressed, us, pressed up some more albums so we could find, find it more easily. <laughs> that album is a, never, and it was never in record stores. It was never had any distribution right. beyond Victor, New York. So, right. I, mean, uh, <laughs> I, I, I told people who have told me they still had it. I said, geez, you know, Don saw those things going on eBay for three grand. You know, not bad for a $3 investment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 You, you wish you would have kept a box in your garage and, you know, pull them out <laughs> now, right? <laughs> I think the cover tunes you do on there are real interesting too because you don't really try to sound like the record you real you know really do your put your own spin on things you know I'm thinking about right. something like it walk on by you know yeah, again that's Jay's influence I think and we really weren't trying to imitate another band or perhaps we couldn't you know but uh, that really wasn't the objective if you see me walking down the street and I start to cry each time we meet. 
uh, orchestration on that and uh, the rewrites on it and, and really coordinated the whole thing. You know, he picked some good stuff. He did. I think you know, most bands back then, they were trying to sound, you know, they were basically trying to sound like an AM radio, just grinding out uh -huh. the, the hits as close as possible to how they sounded on the radio. And you really did something different by changing the arrangements and uh, making them your own. Uh, Bells of Rimney is another one on there that, that I absolutely love that version. Yeah. It's, I mean, you probably must have learned it from the birds. They did the most famous version, but... Correct. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the, your version sounds nothing like the birds. It, it's, you know, it's got something special. It's yeah. really, really nice. I think a lot of that's the influence of, uh, you know, listening to all of the bands that we did. You know, it, it was not trying to emulate one band or another. It was sort of, you know, creating our own sound. I mean, that's, that's my belief. And, yeah. you know... Don may be able to verify that. But we owe it all to Jay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, yeah, you, I think that's really what sets it apart and what makes this record special. Um, it's completely your own sound, and um, it's really well done. Um, let's talk about the album cover, because that was, that was your responsibility, oh, yeah. right? Um, oh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> tell us about that process. <laughs> um, I remember very little. That tells me that it happened pretty fast. I mean, like, real fast. We need an album cover. We were, you know, someone asked if we had an album cover we wanted to use. And, I, I you know, I just went, okay, yeah, I'll do it. So, uh, it was done. And, and yeah, what, what materials did you use? Uh, I, I believe it was just a black poster board and white tempera paint. And I think that was about it. And it just shows the haircuts, like uh, yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a, just taken from photos of the other guys, and you know, any photos we had kicking around at the time, I just used those, so right. it really wasn't portraiture. So uh, yeah, but the, but the composition of it is reminiscent of um, you know, Meet the Beatles. Yeah, the first Beatles album. Yeah, right. Did you do it like actual size? Do you remember what size poster board? It yes, was uh, it was pretty much actual size. Yes. So then, then I guess you you gave that to Mr. Dangler, and he you know he probably just mailed the tape and the poster board to Century. Yeah. Probably mailed it to California. And there was no back album cover on the on the original mm -hmm. album. It's just a uh, it's just a line drawing of the Century Records factory plant. <laughs> yeah, the standard the standard background. Correct. I think that added to the confusion of the name of the band because there was nothing on the back. Yeah, yeah. All the song titles were just on the label, and and that right. was it. Yeah, right. It was fairly basic. So let's talk a little bit about um, your live shows. I mean, how far outside of uh, Victor did you venture with your shows? Uh, we were pretty much in that Western New York area. Uh, I think I had told you before that you know we were relatively young. We couldn't play at bars and places that served alcohol. We were all underage. So it was, you know, uh, private parties and community centers and group parties at country clubs, stuff like that, but just really around the area where we lived. 
And uh, how about hauling you, you know, you guys and your equipment around? Did you drive yourselves, or did your parents drive you? Did you have a band vehicle? Uh, no band vehicle. Uh, we were all of driving age. Uh, Jay's father always seemed to have his station wagon available. I had a vehicle, so we got everything jammed in, and away we went. <laughs> Yeah, the cars were bigger and the amps were smaller back then. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so how long? How much longer did the band last after the album came out? I guess that was 1968. So um, there's a final year of high yeah. school for some of the band members, I think. Yeah, that was final year for actually everyone but myself. So after the album was done, you know, reality, I think, sort of started to set in. And, uh, you know, we had to start making adult decisions is what I attribute it to. You know, Jerry decided to leave the band first. And I, I think it's just like really a natural sort of thing. You know, you're, you might get questions at home. At, you know, what are you planning on doing with yourself the rest of your life? You know, you got to start looking ahead, this sort of thing. I mean, I know I got some of that at home myself. So I think that's really what, you know started the demise of the band right and then back then of course there was a little more weight to that question what are you going to do with your life because of the vietnam war um if you went to college you would not get drafted and if you didn't go to college and you were over 18 at the time yeah that was the plan i know when i got to college they lifted that so know, it's <laughs> good incentive it didn't for... do me any good <laughs> yeah thanks a lot yeah. <laughs> we got a very educated generation of people out of that i think somebody had the theory that that's why there's so many lawyers because everybody in the 60s went to college and got a degree and they and, uh, and there was suddenly lawyers everywhere and uh <laughs> trying to find work so the ambulance ambulance chasing began <laughs> true so but you know Nixon put the kibosh on that, so uh, <laughs> we're sort of faced with it again. But you know, and it's, it's funny, you know, thinking back with the band, uh, I don't really remember talking to the guys about the war or the draft or anything like that. You know, that really wasn't a focus. Yeah. You know, I think it was more of an external pressure on you about what you were going to do. I mean, Don's family was into education. You know, his father was supervising principal of our school system. So I'm sure Don was getting it. And I'm more than likely Jay was getting it and Jerry was getting it. And, you know, the following year I got it. <laughs> so, you know, that little bit of pressure on you to think past the here and now. And that was really a demise, I think, of the band. Right. So the th first, the, the other three guys, they went away to college in different towns. And mm -hmm. uh, I know you tried to keep it going for a little while during, you know, breaks. Uh, the three of us tried during some breaks and stuff, but it was terribly sporadic. Um, I mean, really sporadic. Yeah. And, you know, again, by that time, I'm getting some a little bit of... You know, I'm spending a lot of time thinking about what I'm going to do with myself. You know, I don't have the band here anymore. I don't have my friends here anymore. You know, what am I going to do? And, uh, you know, that that really, unfortunately, really ended it for us. But, you know, it is what it is. I mean, that's. I think it's very, very natural. Yeah. There was never going to be any second Thus album. So it's just one album and it's perfect in its own way. 
yeah. a moment in time for you guys, you know, just so your, your final high school years, so, you know, encapsulated. Absolutely. You went ahead and uh, went to study art. Mm -hmm. Was that always something that you'd thought about doing? Well, I, I always had an interest or an affinity for it. I don't know if I necessarily had the talent for it, but I, you know, always had the interest in it. And uh, I made that decision that, you know, that year while the guys were away at school, that uh, I'm going to go to school too, but I don't think I could survive a regular academic school. I'm going to go to art school. So that's how I made my decision. <laughs> but that worked out pretty good for you, right? I mean, tell us about, you know, you've really gone on to have a career yeah. in art. Yeah, I, you know, I paint. My um, early on, I did, you know, did my undergraduate work. And uh, while I was doing my graduate work, I started teaching. I did, oh, two, three years in a community college. And then by the time I finished with graduate school, they... The school hired me to teach there, and I taught mostly night school, uh, non-tenure track stuff for 14 years. Yeah. And taught and kept painting and, uh, you know, exhibited when I could. Kind of a, the one-man band. <laughs> right. Right, yeah. So you could still ha uh, pursue something creative uh, without having to depend right. on, uh, you know, a group of friends holding it together mm -hmm. that way. And, and you're still obviously uh, making a living as an artist and having your work exhibited and things like still that. Still painting, yeah. Yeah, I exhibit when I can. And yeah, I paint pretty much every day. That's great. And did you stay in touch with the other band members? Let's talk about what happened to them. Uh, there was a big void when I went to school. Um, you know, I was gone for oh, four years of school, and I stayed in, in town and worked there for a couple of years afterwards. Uh, we did hook back up once after I moved back up to uh, Western New York. And it was kind of a, for me, it was sort of an awkward reunion. Why was that? Uh, I don't know. It's just, uh, it just didn't seem the same. I mean, Jay had a family and, and Don, you know, had some of his friends there and some of his, you know, newer friends with him. And it, 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 it just seemed, you know, slightly awkward. But again, that was just my perception of it. Yeah. Um, and we really didn't communicate a whole lot until I remember getting a phone call in the mid 90s when uh, Rockadelic had approached us about uh, doing a reissue. Uh, I got a call from Don, and all they needed was verbal consent to do it. And we all said, well, why not? So that's all how all that started. Right, and that was the the point where you know many people f heard the album for the first time, or even knew of its existence. Um, right, was that Rockadelic reissue, which they changed the cover. They didn't use your cover art. They put a <laughs> put a no. photo of the band on the cover, and mm -hmm. um, and they and they changed the song sequencing around a little bit for some reason. Right, right. I, I don't understand that. And 
they didn't make the name correction either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is still, yeah, everybody still was referring to it as all of us. Of us, uh, right. Um, and then, you know, that, of course, I don't know how many copies they did, probably 500,000 copies, something like that. I don't know. That, you know, that, that itself became a collectible, I think. <laughs> yeah, it was a very loose, you know, a real loose operation as far as I'm concerned. I mean, verbal okay over the telephone and uh, boom the thing was produced you know i got a lot of them in the mail i think all four of us did and uh that was it yeah that was that was it no contract no nothing <laughs> and then since then it's kind of taken on a life of its own because of course it's all over youtube and things like that um and the and the price of the original album just keep going up and up and uh, like you said I think oh, yeah. they go, they're going for about three thousand dollars these days if but they I mean mm -hmm. they rarely there's rarely ever one turns up on eBay or anything because there's so few yeah there's right. just so few of them in existence so now we've we come around to a there's been a new reissue of this on a, a label from Spain called Gerson and um, this is how you and I first connected because they asked me to write the liner notes for it and do a story in Ugly Things. And um, they've really uh, done a great job on this reissue. They've restored your original cover art. They've restored the song sequence, uh, remastered it very nicely. And um, this is the version, you know, unless you've got three grand and get lucky and find one, I think this is the version that right. most people are going to want to pick up. Right. No, I, I think they did a great job on it. Um, yeah, really good job. We had a lot of input, Don and I did, you know, as to uh, what we wanted. And, you know, and I, we both wanted to have the original song sequence in there. And uh, they were just great. They just were great to work with, very thorough, and we couldn't be happier. As you mentioned, uh, you and Don had a lot of input. Sadly, the other two band members, Jerry and Jay, or John, I should say, both passed away in 2020, so relatively recently. Yes. I hope their families get copies of the record so that they know that the music they made and the songs of Jay Johnston are still finding new listeners who love them. So the songs Jay wrote in high school and the music the band made really had some value and some meaning. Correct. I, I have already sent a copy to uh, Jay's wife. Yeah, because that's a beautiful, uh, you know... Um, memory a memento to have of of uh, you know his talent as don said to me says his grandkids need to know how cool a guy he was <laughs> yeah <laughs> well he was yeah i didn't you know he was uh you know his songs only got heard by 265 people back then but now <laughs> a few thousand people uh, are right. fans of uh, thus and the songs of jay johnston The Ugly Things Podcast was produced by James Archer and narrated by Mike Stacks. That's me. You can learn more about Thus in issue number 59 of Ugly Things Magazine, which is available at uglythings.com. That's ugly-things.com, where you can also order back issues, vinyl, CDs, and books, and read additional articles and reviews. Please support us on Patreon, where all contributions are deeply appreciated and will allow us to keep bringing you the very best in 1960s beat, garage, and psychedelic music. I'd like to give a shout-out to our first Patreon supporters, Rob Brannigan, Chip Lyon, and J. Paul Riga. Thank you, all of you, 
for your support. And thank you for listening. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.